Heavenly Father, this is your word. Because it is your word, it never returns void. It never fails to accomplish what you want it to accomplish. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerful and effective. It searches us out in the depths of our heart where no one else can see. It moves into spaces other books cannot move. It shows sin like other books cannot show. It's living. It's breathing. It's a divine word. It's a word that works. And we need it to work in us. Because we are stubborn. And we are selfish. And we're obstinate. And we are full of ourselves. And we can see how this word applies to everybody else around us. And not see how it applies to us. Despite our proneness to distraction. And despite the coldness of our heart. Please. Lead us to the empty tomb. And leave us there. Give hope. Give perspective. The grave couldn't hold them. And neither could the weight of our sin. Help this resurrection gospel to make us glad. To make us sing. To make us repent. Help us to see that Jesus had to die. Because we love our sin more than his safety. Father. To the child who has listened to the gospel so many times but never really heard it once, please give them ears to hear. To the adult who is even at this moment so distracted, settle their minds and help them to hear your word with such clarity it penetrates the soul. To the hard-hearted non-Christian and the self-deceived non-Christian, use your word like a hammer. Break up the stone heart and make it gospel receptive. For the members of FFC, those who have covenanted together here, help our souls to breathe after holiness, to possess a constant devotedness to thee, when temptation presents itself, give us grace to flee to your wounds. Now, great architect, you said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Build your work and let us not have wasted effort. Never sleeping one. You said... Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Watch over our church, our homes, our children, our marriages, our singles, our widows, our teenagers, and protect us. Help us just to get under your word today like little kids who want to get under their dad's arm. Meet us in the scriptures. And make my feeble efforts fruitful. If this day we are reduced to listening to the meanderings of a mere man. That's a dreadful task indeed. It's a good thing you've spoken. It's a good thing you're a talking God. Will you come now and speak to us. 
Father, open your hands and feed us. Bend down and whisper to us. Call us to worship. Amen. A verbal spanking. That's what we have in our passage. A verbal spanking. Apostolic discipline. Paul isn't playing around with this church. He planted them three to five years ago and he will have no child of his behave like they are behaving and believe like they are believing. We would have a lot less churches like Corinth if we had a lot more men like Paul willing to give verbal spankings. We don't need coddling. We need correcting. And it begins in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Placing this chapter within the grand scope of 1 Corinthians, this is our 27th sermon walking verse by verse through the book. We find that Paul is moving from disorderly worship to disordered belief. Their belief concerning a particular doctrine was disordered, incorrect, unbiblical, out of whack, out of step, needing correction, needing rebuke. Their view of the resurrection was flat out wrong. Apparently, some people in the church no longer held to the future bodily resurrection of believers. They thought Jesus' resurrection was a one-off. What happened to him will not happen to us. Paul didn't view this as a doctrinal misstep, something that was trivial. No, he viewed it as willfully perverting what he had taught them. Not a slight veer off course, but a complete 180. This is not honest confusion. This is deliberate doctrinal rebellion. They grew sour towards biblical teaching. Now, don't misunderstand. They held to the immortality of the soul. They believed the soul lived forever, but laughed at the idea that the body would come out of the ground and then be indestructible. That sounds too fantastic, too unbelievable, too cartoonish. They were in a young, hip, cool, urban city, and it seems they allowed the culture's view of the afterlife to affect theirs. They were holding and heralding a belief taught in Athens just 45 miles away. That's where the Greek philosophers pontificated. It seems the academy began to trickle into the church. The famous culture-setting Greek philosophers did not have a worldview to accommodate the belief in a bodily resurrection. They found the idea to be intellectually unpalatable. They pushed eschatological propaganda and the church began swallowing it. Maybe bodily resurrection is not a viable, credible concept. They were mixing pagan notions with divine doctrine. They were not simply diluting the gospel. They were contaminating it. They allowed the beliefs of their society to contaminate and corrupt their thinking. 
these pseudo-intellectuals began to teach classic dualism. That the soul continues to live since it, is, it, since it is immortal, but the body perishes. The spirit goes off to live in spirit land, but the body becomes plant food. They were drinking from the cup of people like Seneca, who said, I will leave my body, and I myself will go back to the gods. They contested death grants liberty to the soul and permits it to depart to its pure abode. The mortal body is shed like a snake skin. They could not imagine a bodily existence beyond the grave. When death came, the soul was finally released from its prison. They gladly welcomed death as a deliverance from bondage. The body was an unworthy vehicle for the eternal state. That skeptical attitude toward the body entered the church. Body inferior, body a liability, body intrinsically evil, the soul intrinsically good. A bodily resurrection was a serious intellectual obstacle for the Greeks in Corinth. They doubted the very conceivability of a bodily resurrection. Reconstructing their theology on this matter involves a degree of mirror reading. That is, reading Paul's statement against a position that isn't clearly stated. We must reconstruct it. We may never be able to fully satisfy our curiosity about the source of their skepticism, but it seemed to, to be this. Look at verse 13 as the rain joins us. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. They were not necessarily opposed to Jesus' resurrection, but to ours. However, Paul points out that if you deny one, you deny the other. The two resurrections stand or fall together. You can't deny our resurrection and affirm his resurrection. Paul will not let them get away with that. You, you can't deny the resurrection of believers and be a Christian. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. The reality of the former guarantees the reality of the latter. If you lose the resurrection of the dead, you lose the resurrection of Christ. Hear Paul's snort of indignation. Paul has no patience for liberal theology. He's deeply disturbed by those who deny the resurrection. Your acceptance of this popular cultural dualism constitutes a radical rejection of the gospel. Paul says, let's just take it to its logical conclusion. You deny Christ's bodily resurrection when you deny Christians' bodily resurrection. The two are joined at the hip and inextricably linked. Your denial of this Christian resurrection results in other unacceptable denials. Verbal spanking, verse 12 and 13. Now, here's what we are presented with in the text. Seven implications of an occupied tomb, verses 14 through 19. 
Three implications of an empty tomb, verses 12 through 28. Four applications to carry to your tomb, verses 29 through 34. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. Three implications of an empty tomb. Four applications to carry to your tomb. I basically have a 14-point sermon. <laughs> I'm a modern Puritan. May the Lord have mercy on your ears and understanding. Verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, that means if Jesus is still in the tomb, if he's still occupying his grave, Paul will walk out seven implications of a dead Christ. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. If Christ's bodily resurrection is not true, then these seven things are true. Paul is going to say some shocking things. Employ shock therapy. Shock them back to truth. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. First, Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Paul started the church in Corinth. Apollos pastors it now. Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are your pastors. All of us, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. It is useless. Regardless of how beautiful or how oratorical, how logical or how stimulating, it's worth absolutely nothing if the tomb is still occupied. Preaching is a colossal waste of time. Every sermon that has ever been preached was a waste. Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Calvin, R.C. Sproul, John Chrysostom, John Owen, Zwingli, Richard Zibbs, John Bunyan, they wasted their breath. They wasted their lives. Their sermons meant nothing and did nothing lasting. They were all empty rhetoric. If the tomb is occupied, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist and he doesn't move when the word is preached. I'm sweating and spitting and yelling up here for nothing. The church at Corinth was founded on the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, that church is built on sand. Non-Christians, I am the first to admit this is a sham without a resurrection. My life is wasted without a resurrection. Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. Secondly, your faith placed in Jesus is wasted. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. There is bad news if there is no resurrection. Christianity is nothing without a risen Christ. 
The linchpin of the Christian faith is the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection, no Christianity. You are, you are going through empty religious rituals. All this is emotional manipulation, psychological deception. Do you remember Pascal's wager? Blaise Pascal, French math mathematician and physicist. Pascal's theory was that it is better to be a Christian than a non-Christian based simply on the chances. Pascal said, if you live your life as a Christian on earth and then later you come to find out that Christianity is not true, then you will not have lost a lot because after all, you'll have lived a good life. But, Pascal said, if you live your life as a non-Christian in this world, you reject God, and in eternity you discover that Christianity is indeed true, then you have lost everything, and you'll spend eternity in hell. So when you play the chances, it's worth it. It's a lot wiser to be a Christian. If you're a gambling man, it's better to be a Christian. Bet your life on God. It's a sensible bet. Minimize your risk. If I'm wrong as a Christian, I've lost nothing. If you're wrong as a non-Christian, you've lost everything. Well, that's not Paul's thinking at all. Paul would spit at that. That's crazy. Paul says if the resurrection is not true, your life is wasted as a Christian. I am wasting my life if Christianity is not real. Wasting it. Believe Paul, not Pascal. It is madness to put your faith in a man regardless of his good deeds or the brilliance of his teaching or the quality of his example if he's still dead. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the resurrection is not true, then these things are true. First, Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Second, your faith placed in Jesus is wasted. Third, all the apostles and eyewitnesses were liars. They said something happened that didn't happen. They were simply spreading falsehoods. They spread lies all across the Middle East and we continued the spreading of lies all across Clarksville, Hopkinsville, and Oak Grove. Paul says, then I'm a liar. If he's not risen, I have lied. If Jesus never walked out of the grave, all these men died for what they knew was a lie. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, that's not just a sad ending to a nice guy's story. No, the whole house of cards falls. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
as Paul continues to demonstrate the absurdity of denying the resurrection, he gives his fourth implication of an occupied tomb. And it's this. As a human race, we are going nowhere. As a human race, we are going nowhere. If Jesus didn't rise, your faith is futile, worthless, aimless. Everything this morning is a fruitless exercise. Now, a genuine resurrection means endless hope. But no resurrection means a hopeless end. The resurrection is the hinge on which the story of the world pivots. If the resurrection was a con, there is no plan for the world. There is no sovereign controller over the events of life. History isn't his story. It's nobody's story. It doesn't have an author. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you have staked your entire life and eternity on a decomposed corpse of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago. Again, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. Fifth, Christians are still living in their sins. Christians are still living in their sins. Jesus gave it a good try, but you are still in your sins. Atonement didn't happen. We are still under the curse. We are in our sins and can't get out. We are still under the wrath of God. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then his death accomplished nothing. There is no release from your sins. No matter how beautiful his death was, it meant absolutely nothing. If Christ is not the resurrected Savior, then sin is sovereign, not him. Sin wins. Salvation was an illusion. My seminary president said, if Jesus is physically dead, if Jesus is still physically dead, we are still spiritually dead. Sin is still a chain that binds us, a load that burdens us, and a master that controls us. If the tomb is still occupied, he has no ears to hear your cry for salvation. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If the resurrection is not true, these things are true. First, Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Second, your faith, is placed, your faith placed in Jesus is wasted. Third, all apostles and eyewitnesses were liars. Fourth, as a human race, we are going nowhere. Fifth, Christians are still living in their sins. Sixth, death was stronger than God. Everyone who died with hope in Christ died believing a myth. Death is the final period at the end of the sentence of their life. It's over. The dead have perished. They're gone. Your brother is gone. 
Your grandmother is gone. Your father isn't coming back. They are all gone. Not only did they die, even worse, they died hoping in Christ. They died believing a lie. The graves that swallowed up their bodies will never give them back. Dead Christians stay dead. If there is no bodily resurrection, then our loved ones who have perished, they will never live again. Every funeral I've ever conducted, I've given lies. Those people will not live again. They died saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Actually, he doesn't and neither will you. Graveyards will be forever trophy cases for death's countless victories. Headstones are eternal billboards that boast of death's strength. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the resurrection is not true, then these things are true. First, Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Second, your faith placed in Jesus is wasted. Third, all apostles and eyewitnesses were liars. Fourth, as a human race, we are going nowhere. Fifth, Christians are still living in their sins. Sixth, death was stronger than God. Seventh, Christians are pathetic, gullible people. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Tom Schreiner, New Testament theologian, draws a devastating conclusion. He says, Paul does not salute the nobility and sacrifice of Christians, even if their faith is not true. Instead, if Christ was not crucified and has not risen for their sins, believers have wasted their lives in, notice this, believing fables. We are pitiful, pathetic fools who believed, lived, and died for a mirage. Joke's on us. We were deceived, we were duped, we were tricked, we were fooled. Non-Christian, if Christ is not risen, we Christians are the most pitiful people in the world. We are spending our lives for a delusion. If Christ is not risen, he is the lunatic that C.S. Lewis said he could be. If the body of Jesus is found somewhere in the Middle East, it would not mean that the walls of Christianity would need repainting. It would mean the whole house comes crashing down. The gospel cannot survive a dead Savior. Everything hangs on whether Christ came out of the tomb. And Paul's argument is irrefutable. The Corinthians are being forced to agree. They nod their head in agreement. Yes, that's true. Yes, it is. You are right. You nailed it. If the resurrection is not true, then these things are true. Paul, Apollos, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan are wasting their lives. Your faith placed in Jesus is wasted. The apostles and eyewitnesses were liars. As a human race, we are going nowhere. Christians are still living in their sins. Death was stronger than God. Christians are pathetic, gullible people. All these things are true 
if Christ is not risen from the dead. But Christ is risen from the dead. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Seven implications of an occupied tomb, verses 14 through 19. Now three implications of an empty tomb, verses 20 through 28. Let's read verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The seven if statements of, ninth, of, of verses 14 through 19. The seven if statements of 14 through 19 are countered by verse 20. It's the great reversal. But in fact, a contrastive conjunction. The argument is turning. We are headed to higher ground. Paul turns to the certainty of Christ's resurrection and its implications. Three implications of an empty tomb. First, Christ's resurrection was the first fruits. There was an Old Testament festival where Israel would bring the first sheaf of grain to the Lord. Before they harvested the entire field, they would bring a representative sample and offer it to the Lord. It was part of the crop, no matter what the crop was, wheat, olive oil, grapes, corn cob, whatever. It was the first part of the harvest. God says, Jesus Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of the harvest. Jesus' resurrection was a representative sample of the greater whole. The first fruits, that means there are more to follow. His resurrection is the guarantee that it is available to all. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. The main concern here is to show that Christ's resurrection was more than just his own resurrection. It foretold of a general resurrection. First we have a token harvest, then a total harvest. The first fruits anticipate the full harvest. His resurrection promises the rest of the harvest. You can't isolate the resurrections from one another. His resurrection requires our resurrection. We lie between two Easter's. The first Easter and the last Easter. The first fruits and all the fruits. The token harvest and the total harvest. And you might ask, Kyle, what happens to Christians before God resurrects them from the dead? Well, that's a great question. We call that the intermediate state. Your soul is present with the Lord, absent from the body. You are in heaven, but you will be getting a new body. You were not made for heaven. You were made for the new earth. You were only in heaven temporarily. Heaven is a stop along the journey until you get your new body and live for eternity with the Lord on the new earth. You will walk around with a soul and body. It's a siesta for our bodies, nap time, until the rest of the harvest is brought in. The euphemism sleep emphasizes it's only a temporal position. And you ask, well, what about my Christian grandfather who died or grandmother? Well, their bodies are still there. Their spirit is with Jesus. Jesus. 
Their body and bones are decaying in a casket. And you would see that if you opened it. But they are just in the intermediate state. One day God will rip open the casket of every person who believed on Christ. And he will restore that physical body to life. God has future plans for the body. Paul wants the church to ponder the everlasting destination of their bodies. God has made an eternal investment in your body. The Corinthians may be antibody, but God isn't. The resurrection is God's affirmation of the body. The body is more than some transient physical shell for the soul. It is the object of Christ's redemption. God is pro-body. He made it. He designed it. Our bodies are not finally destined to be eaten by worms. He will raise them from the dead. Verse 21. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Who is Paul talking about here? By one man came death. Adam. Three implications of an empty tomb. Number two, Jesus Christ is the second Adam. We begin this Adam-Christ analogy. Just as all were affected by the actions of the first Adam, so all were, af so all were affected by the actions of the second Adam. His, his death was long ago, but it had ongoing repercussions. Only the resurrection can deal with what the first Adam did. Through a man, corruption entered, <laughs> and through a man, it was overcome. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul continues this parallel between Adam and Christ. We have federal logic here. Adam functioned as the federal head, the representative head of all people. And now Jesus functions as the federal head of his people. Fallen humanity in Adam a new redeemed humanity in Christ. Humans are in Adam by nature and in Christ by faith. See the symmetry of God's dealing with the human race? What happened to Jesus must happen to all those who follow him. Now I want to point out there is no hint of universalism in this verse that all people are saved. The all in verse 22 is qualified in verse 23, all who belong to him. Whereby Adam represents every single human being without exception, Christ represents only those who belong to him. Not everyone is in the second Adam like they were in the first Adam. Christ is the true and better Adam. The flesh of the first Adam was eaten by worms. The flesh of the second Adam is at the right hand of God. The second Adam exists in a resurrected body right now. The first Adam is awaiting his resurrected body. By the way, you get rid of the historical Adam and you get rid of the gospel. Be very careful in your dealings in Genesis. It took one man to ruin us and it took one man to save us. Christ tasted resurrection for us. Verse 23. But each in his own order. 
Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Everything happens in order. There is an order of the resurrection. Now, some of my dispensational brethren and sistren read multiple resurrections into the word order. I don't see that. Stage one, Christ. Stage two, all believers. Then comes the end, verse 24. There is an interval between the two resurrections. We live between two resurrections. His and ours. His is the guarantee of a harvest to come. The resurrection happens at his coming. Andrew Wilson pointed out, we do not wait with doubt or concern. We wait with certainty and expectation. Like a farmer waiting for crops to break through the ground, we wait for bodies to break through the ground. We wait with certainty. In December 1941, Winston Churchill received the news that the Japanese had bombed the American Pacific Fleet as it lay anchored at Pearl Harbor. He wrote something in his diary that captures beautifully how we wait for the resurrection. He, he was confident now that America would finally enter the war against Germany and Japan. The result of the war was now a foregone conclusion, even if it would take many years to come about. Churchill wrote, So we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead but there is no more doubt about the end being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful beloved we are so sure of the coming harvest we are able to go to sleep and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful verse 24 then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom of God, when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God the Father, let me read that again. Then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. <laughs> so it can't be universal salvation. You see that. Otherwise, no one would be judged. Here, people and nations are being judged. The human race is going somewhere. History is going somewhere. It's all headed to the feet of Jesus. Three implications of an empty tomb. Number three, Christ will put all men and nations under subjection. The phrase in verse 24 speaks of a Roman emperor who would send out his leading general to put down seditious movements and rebellious vassal states. God will vindicate his oppressed and marginalized. He will put down competing and corrupting and perverting dominions. We are not just waiting for our resurrection. We are waiting for all those who oppose Christ to be destroyed. Paul is countering Roman imperial eschatology. Rome itself will be put down. Rome will be rendered null and void and inoperable. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. No time lapse between the two verses. Grammatically, there is not. Jesus comes and then he puts the kingdoms under his foot. Christ will annihilate. 
No mention of a millennium or a thousand-year reign of Christ. I find that ex exegetically unconvincing. If you want to know where I stand on the millennium, I preach through the book of Revelation. You can check out chapter 20. But here, every enemy and contending pretender will be put down. Vladimir Putin is not reigning over all things. ISIS is not reigning over all things. Kim Jong-un is not reigning over all things. Hezbollah does not reign. The United States does not reign. China does not reign. All of history is headed toward the day when every man and every woman and every nation will bow before Jesus and he will forever be exalted. The enemies of God will be destroyed. Your faith placed in Jesus is not wasted. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death entered last and death will be the last to go. It will be abolished. Jesus guarantees the destruction of the last enemy. Death will be the last enemy made to kiss his feet. Finally subjugated, death is vanquished, death has a date, Jesus will rip its face off. He ends the tyranny of death. Death doesn't flex on God, God flexes on death. Graveyards are no longer trophy cases for death. They are now trophy cases for a resurrection. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The same verb is used six times in two verses. Put under. All things will be put under subjection to Christ. That does not include the Father, of course. He's the one obvious exception. The Father has given unlimited sovereignty over all creation to the Son. God gives Jesus Christ all kingdoms and Jesus will hand back the kingdom which he has received. Everything has been subjected to Christ and he will subject himself to the Father. Paul's language drifts towards doxology. He's praising God in the middle of teaching about God. Seven implications of an occupied tomb. Three implications of an empty tomb. Now four applications to carry to your tomb. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now this is where I tagged Daniel Hurd and he's going to come up and teach this verse. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. What in the world is happening here? Who are these dead people? Unbaptized believers? Unsaved people? What did the people who were being baptized think they would achieve by this? Denny Burke says there are over 40 different interpretations on this verse. It's a strange text. It's a difficult, obscure passage. There are like 40 possibilities, but I will narrow them down to two. Two options. 
Option one, vicarious baptism or proxy baptism. That's undergoing baptism in the place of others. The Mormon church practices this. Maybe you've encountered two young men, clean cut, dressed nicely, riding bikes, spewing heresy. The Mormons collect these massive genealogies. They have huge archives of their families, and they get baptized for their dead relatives, like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Uncle Fred wasn't saved. Let me get baptized on his behalf, and later he will have an opportunity to pursue salvation through works. Joseph Smith instituted that practice in 1840 in response to concerns from his followers over family that died unbaptized. Tertullian, about 100 years after Paul, and Chrysostom, about 350 years after Paul, mentioned a practice similar to this. They never supported it, simply indicated it went on. The, the, the Marcionites practiced this in the 2nd century, those heretics. This practice, whatever it is, is not found in any other first century church. Only heretical groups baptized for the dead. There is no evidence of this in any other New Testament church. Paul, some say, is recognizing the practice as happening in the church at Corinth, but he's not supporting it. He is not teaching to adopt this practice. A lot of messed up stuff happened in this church that didn't happen in other New Testament churches. Strange things took place in Corinth. We can agree on that. This practice does not fit Paul's theology or any other biblical data. It's anti-Pauline teaching. If you can't save yourself by baptism, then certainly you can't be baptized to save someone else. Any teaching of baptismal regeneration before or after death is anti-Bible. If you think you are saved because you've been baptized, it is very likely you are going to bust hell wide open. Paul does not endorse a magical view of baptism. That is foolish superstition. Once someone has died, there is no need to pray for them or be baptized for them. Everything is set for them. There are only parallels for this in pagan religions. And it smacks of a magical view of sacramentalism. Paul acknowledges the practice but does not endorse it. Paul simply identifies this unbiblical exercise to show that they were inconsistent with their own crazy practices. Paul's purpose was not to explain or defend the practice but to show the inconsistency. He cites the practice to highlight the absurdity of baptizing on behalf of the dead while denying the resurrection of the dead. Paul is capable of reasoning from a practice he doesn't approve of. He did it already in the book with idol feasts. John MacArthur says, whatever this is, history has locked it into obscurity. That's option one. I hold to option two. Some say it's weak and it's a cop-out, but it makes the most sense to me. Baptism pictures Jesus' death burial and resurrection when you come up out of the water it represents a resurrection so here's what i think it means don't ever practice baptism if you don't believe in a resurrection people in the second century interpreted this verse that way 
If you don't believe in a resurrection, baptism is a pointless rite that falsely represents. Now, one scholar, Strain, goes along with my thoughts here, but he takes it, he takes a slightly different stance in the end. He thinks the dead in the verse refers to Jesus. He says, and I quote, Paul has been arguing all along that if there is no resurrection, then Jesus has not been raised. He, like everyone else, belongs in that category. He is among the dead. Jesus is just another dead man, a pile of moldering old bones among all the others. That's what I think it means by the dead. He's saying, if that's where Jesus really is, what's the point of being baptized for someone who's just another dead guy, just another one of the dead, end quote. Now, that's a, that's a strong view. Maybe that's convinced some of you. What's the emphasis here? Beloved, like Paul, be willing to call out theological error among your fellow church members, among friends outside of church, and in this Christ-hating world. Do you need to reshape the way you address doctrinal error? Don't be against what Paul is doing here. A verbal spanking. You can't take it or leave it when it comes to the bodily resurrection. Paul says it's a tier one issue. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Church, they are foolish to put their lives in danger if Christ is not risen. Paul wouldn't die for something he didn't believe in. He knows what he saw. He met the resurrected Christ. He's willing for it to continue to endanger him. He was stoned, beaten, in prison, faced attempted murder. Paul, at great personal risk, proclaimed the resurrected Christ. He constantly faced death in ministry. Paul almost single-handedly wiped out the church before becoming a Christian. You can't explain a Paul without a resurrection. The apostles were not meaninglessly putting their lives in danger. Something changed them from cowards to flaming evangelists. They were hiding when Christ was dying. Now they are bold. What was it? They saw the resurrected Christ. They were eyewitnesses. They were not liars. And their life after proves it. Were they willing to die for a metaphor? I don't think so. You don't die for a metaphor. The resurrection was a metaphor for... You don't die for a metaphor. It was real. It was his body. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead then don't do anything that would risk your life. It is not worth it. Four applications to carry to your tomb. First, because Jesus Christ lost everything for us, we can ultimately lose anything for him. Because Jesus Christ lost everything for us, we can ultimately lose anything for him. We become risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying, radical followers of Christ. Come on graves, come on crosses, come on whips. We spit in the face of persecution. Our God will raise us from the dead. You can't do anything to this body that Jesus will not undo in the resurrection. 
Church, go to the mission field, reach savages, take a stand in Bible-hating Corinth, stand up in Christ-denying academia. The sin-stopping, death-killing, grave-empty, and resurrection power goes with you. A life spent suffering for Christ is not wasted. A life spent proclaiming Christ is not wasted. Their pastors, Paul and Apollos, did not waste their lives. And your pastors, Kyle, Daniel, Jared, and Dan, are not wasting their lives. Verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Paul led a self-denying ministry. Die myself for the advance of the gospel? It's pointless to deny myself if there is no resurrection of the dead. Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Did Paul have a struggle with beasts, a Daniel-like struggle? No, I I don't think so. Acts would have mentioned that. Paul was also a Roman citizen and they were not permitted to be thrown to the lions. There were few exceptions to that, I guess. Paul speaks of human persecutors pictured metaphorically as ferocious beasts. He's describing the persecutors as vicious animals. He's thinking back on his harrowing experience in Ephesus. His life-threatening situation after life-threatening situation. Verse 32b. If the dead are not raised... Then Paul gives a a hedonist quote. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This was an everyday proverb or witism in Corinth. Paul tells them they might as well adopt a hedonistic philosophy of the Epicureans. Don't serve God. Serve your appetites. Get all you can and can all you get. That was a dad thing, dad joke. (laughs) If Christ isn't risen from the dead, live like a typical American. Dead up to your eyeballs, live for the weekend, don't let children get in your way, be a hedonist, embark on sensual reverie. Live it up. If there is no resurrection, there is no need for you to wait until marriage. Morality is meaningless if there is no resurrection. Four applications to carry to your tomb. Number two, live like you believe morality matters. Reflect in the way you live the belief that you will exist on the other side of death. In these verses, we can't get around it. Paul is dealing with ethics, righteous living. The resurrection has implications on your morality. Verse 33, do not be deceived Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 32, Paul uses one secular quote negatively. Verse 33, Paul uses one secular quote positively. He quoted secular people. Paul's readers knew this quote. He's quoting the Athenian Greek dramatist and poet Menander. He lived about three to 400 years before Paul. People knew Menander in this day like we know Shakespeare in our day. The educated Corinthian perked up at this, at this comment. This is a quotation from a lost comedy entitled Face. Paul says, don't allow yourself to be poisoned by this anti-resurrection loose talk. There is a direct relationship between who you hang out with and how you behave. 
When you start to believe what they believe, you start to behave like they behave. Stop hanging out with people that scoff at a future bodily resurrection. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, a sidebar, I don't understand people that stay in liberal churches. Well, I, I, will, turn it, I will turn them around. Wrong. They will turn you. You're not the Messiah. Don't have a Messiah complex when it comes to local churches. Well, I will save them. I will bring in good teaching. Paul tells these believers, you can't be associated with them without being contaminated by their behavior and beliefs. There is a command to stop an action already in progress. You think you're evangelizing them, but they are evangelizing you. You think you're rubbing off on them, but they are rubbing off on you. You, you become the music you listen to. You fill your mind with greedy, with, with greedy podcasters, you will become greedy. You fill your mind with Greek dualistic philosophers in Athens and you will become them. Stop following them on social media. Stop watching their YouTube videos. Stop hanging out with people who teach you wrong stuff about Christ. Stop hanging out with people who pressure you to sin. Up until this moment, the church at Corinth had no idea the culture was affecting their belief and their behavior. They were totally blind to it. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In other words, come back to your senses and start thinking clearly. Your bad behavior is linked to your bad theology you have drunkenness of the soul. Sober up and stop sinning. Paul never possesses a relaxed attitude toward Christian ethics. Never. Four applications to carry to your tomb. Number three, your faith in the bodily resurrection of Christ will be tested. Your faith in the bodily resurrection of Christ will be tested. Professors will pontificate like they did in Athens. The famous culture-setting philosophers will not have a worldview that accommodates the belief in a bodily resurrection. They will find the idea to be intellectually unpalatable. You will be told it's a fable, a myth, a folklore. Militant atheists will tell you dead people don't rise. That's a fact. They will say people in the first century were more likely to believe than us people. They were gullible. We're not easily deceived. We have Instagram. But ancient people had just as much difficulty as modern people. The resurrection was just as preposterous to them as it is to us. Suspicion is natural and warranted, but don't you ever say it's unique. Skeptics say, you Christians just believe everything you've been told. Well, that works both ways. C.S. Lewis says we're all tempted to chronological snobbery. We want to think that the past was less intelligent and able than we are. Don't be a chronological snob. Don't be lazy. Examine the evidence. This room is full of some former skeptics and some current ones. We welcome your presence and your questions. Some of you have heard in college that Jesus' resurrection was borrowed from pagan mythology. 
It's not true. There's zero evidence. The Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed you needed to discard the husk of the body and the soul would flourish in the afterlife. Can't borrow it from them. They don't have it. If the political leaders and religious leaders of the day wanted to stop this whole resurrection myth, all they had to do was provide a body. All they had to do was dig up the bones. I'm trying to tell you, you don't have to reject intellect to be a Christian. Bring your brain to the Bible. Why don't we find anything of Jesus enshrined? Why wasn't his tomb enshrined? His sandals. You can visit places today where holy men and holy women have died and there will be flowers and cards, candles, memorials. None of that was found at the tomb of Jesus. James Dunn, a New Testament scholar, says there is no evidence of any veneration at the tomb of Jesus. Crowds didn't flock there. They didn't light candles. They didn't mourn and weep. Why? Because he wasn't there. History reveals clearly that it was customary for the tomb of a prophet or holy man to be preserved as a shrine. And you say, Kyle, maybe the over 500 witnesses of Christ's resurrection body suffered from cognitive dissonance. I mean, Kyle, you got to admit, people who want to see certain things can be psychologically disposed to seeing those things. Leaping over sanity and fact to see it. The problem is, the disciples were not expecting a resurrection. They were not emotionally caught up in the expectation of a resurrected Messiah. They were not standing outside the tomb going, five, four, three, two, one. No, they had long bounced. They thought their Messiah was dead and wasn't coming back. There are more historical witnesses to the resurrection of Christ than the life of Plato. Christians are not pathetic, gullible people. We rest in facts and evidence and the historicity of the resurrection. And all those who mock Christ will one day beg for mercy when it is too late for mercy. Four applications to carry to your tomb. Lastly, don't ever separate who killed Jesus from who raised Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Jewish authorities? Was it the scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees who turned him in? Judas who betrayed him? Was it the Roman authorities? Pilate? Caiaphas? Was it the hands-on people, the Roman soldiers? They all had their part. But in the end, it was God the Father who put him to death. The unmitigated wrath of God fell on Christ. He experienced hell on a cross. More than physical torture. The spiritual payment for sin ran through him like a deadly disease. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. To cause him to suffer. This is how we Christians absolutely know we are not still living in our sins. Christ atoned for our sins on Calvary. Christ paid our bill. Our payment. We are not living in our sins because our sins for a moment in time, a moment in history, lived on Christ. The resurrection is the proof that the check has cleared. Non-Christian, you must run to this resurrected Christ and beg for forgiveness of sins.
Submit to his lordship now before it is too late and you are forcibly brought under his lordship in judgment. God the Father could raise Jesus from the dead because God the Father was the one who put Jesus to death. Who ultimately put him in the tomb? <laughs> the same God that brought him out of the tomb. Father, we've got lots of questions about what our resurrected bodies will be like. But they will have to wait until next week. You have given us enough this week to praise you for a lifetime. While we have breath, help us to praise you. We are not still in our sins. And it causes us to praise you. Amen.